I went to Bible college and I studied uh, ministry as a degree, a Bible degree, and I needed a minor, and I picked, at first I picked history. I love history. Now eventually I changed my minor uh, from history to Greek, because I figured if I'm gonna learn Greek, I'm gonna learn Greek at college, you know, and um, in preparation for ministry. But I'm always a, a student of history. I love history, and I really love to focus uh, in the 1960s in the, in the space war, you know, in the space, uh, the space, not war, but space race. And, um, and, and, I, and I love, you know, the, 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 the the, you know, the kind of the conflict between Russia and the United States, who was going to be the first man on the moon. And, um, and it looked like for a while there, Russia was going to get it. And then the United States, right there toward the tail end of that decade in 1969, uh, they sent the first man on the moon. And uh, many of you know the name, Neil Armstrong. And uh, he's the first man. And then there was a second man, and I've got a picture of him. His name is Buzz Aldrin. Buzz Aldrin, and he's the... Uh, was the second man on the moon. Now, what's interesting about this is a lot of us, we know, you know, the first, you know, we know this story in 1969, Apollo 11, and uh, we know what Neil Armstrong says, you know, you know, small step for man, giant leap for mankind. Y'all know just a little bit of history, but a lot of us, we probably don't know about this, is that when Buzz Aldrin, before this famous flight to the moon, was really trying to figure out what he could do personally you know, uh, to symbolize or to ha something symbolic on this historical moment that he knew that was about to happen. And in fact, Buzz Aldrin was a very strong Christian. And he attended a Presbyterian church called Webster, Webster Presbyterian Church outside of the city of Houston. And, um, and he was an elder at that church. He was very involved and loved God. And, um, and so he went to his pastor and talked to the pastor at the, at the church and said, hey, you know, I'm about to do this flight. Well, will you pray for me? You know, pray that we get there safely. You know, pray we come back home. You know, I mean, that's a big risk. I mean, we're talking about, you know, talking about, the, you know, when I was talking about it with somebody recently, it's just mind-blowing that in 1969 that they threw a man at a rock in the middle of space and that they found their way back. To me, it's just mind-blowing. The, the technology back then was just, uh, they, just, they barely had it. I mean, they barely had it. I mean, today, you know, if you have a smartphone, um, you have more technology in your smartphone today than the man had in 1969 to fly to the moon. You have more technology. You have enough, you have enough shoes right now to get to, go to the moon yourself, I guess. You know? uh, and, and so you had all the power. They did it, but they made it happen. I'm just fascinated by that. And Audwin's like, hey, what, what can I do, Pastor? And, 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 and in that time, I'm praying and figuring out what, what he would do, um, he thought, you know, what if I do communion? Before we step out in the lunar module, before we take that first step when we land on the moon, what if, what if I did communion before God? And the pastor said, I love it. They gave him a little chalice. See a picture of the chalice here? It's about the size of what you have here. It's very small. He prepared himself a little communion kit, and they went up. We all know they land on the moon. And before they step out, Buzz Aldwin, he called Houston Control. He said, listen, um, Houston Control, I'd like to take a minute. 
Let's do something very special if, if we can just stand by. You know, and if it's very public, I mean, it should all be broadcast on national television. And he looked at Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong was not a believer, but he respected what, Neil, what Buzz was about to do here in the next few minutes. And he had communion right there in that little lunar module, read some scriptures, quoted Psalm, uh, Psalms 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? What's a perfect little setting for that passage of scripture? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And, and he, Buzz Aldrin, after it was all said and done, he described the ceremony like this. I've got it on the screen. So I poured the wine into the chalice that our church had given me. And once the gravity of the moon, the wine curled slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon, the very first food eaten there, were communion elements. And today, if you were to go to that church in Houston, Webster Presbyterian Church, every, every July, they have a Sunday called Lunar Communion Sunday, and they take communion, and they play the tape of those words of Buzz Aldrin while he was in the lunar module, you know, as he broke bread and drank of the juice right there. And, and every year in July, they celebrate, and they, they do, and they participate in communion. Now, you say, my God, that's kind of a cool story. That's kind of neat. And yeah, we're about to take communion. But you know, what's the big deal? I mean, what, what, okay, cool, did it on the moon. We're going to do it here. But what, what's the point? Or, or why is it such a big deal? Why is this so important? And, 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 and I hope that you understand, because today we're going to observe an event. And I want you to understand this. This is an event that got started 2,000 years ago when Jesus, you know, was in the upper room, but it was based on an older event that was 1,500 years before Jesus. So this is an event that, you know, in our sense of purpose of it here, started 3,500 years ago. And we're still observing it today. And, uh, and, and, and this is an event that started 3,500 years ago, known as the Passover the Feast of the Passover. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we did a talk a, a little bit about the Passover. And I learned, just in case you missed it, or in case you need to hear it again, God appointed a leader of the nation of Israel, named with Moses. And God instructed Moses to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let my people go. Now remember, Israel, or the, the Hebrew people, Jewish people, they were a nation without a land. They were in Egypt. They were captive. And, and God had promised to a man named Abraham 400 years before Moses a promised land, the land of Canaan, which is now known today as Israel. And, and, and so Moses knows about this. He said, we need to go. He goes to Pharaoh and said, we need to go to our land. We need to be gone. God has a place for us. God wants us to go. And Pharaoh if you know the story, says, no, you're not going. You're, not, you're gonna stay here, you're gonna keep working, you're gonna keep being our slaves. And so God 
You know, Moses had a standoff against Pharaoh, the 10 plague. And finally, we come down to the last plague. And Moses told Pharaoh that on a certain date, the firstborn of every family in Egypt would be slain by God's angel of death, the death angel, unless Pharaoh released the people. And there were two ways that Pharaoh and Egypt could avoid this judgment, this last plague. There were two ways they could avoid it. Number one, Pharaoh could say, okay, you guys can go. You know, he could, he could have just done that. Or the Egyptian could literally come under the Jewish protection and, and did what the Jewish people were commanded. Now, each Jewish family was to sacrifice, was commanded to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to take that lamb and to smear the blood on the doorpost of their house. And then when the angel of death was to come on that certain day, on that certain night, he would pass through the neighborhoods. And if, if they saw, if that angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over the marked house. He would not go in. He would spare everyone that was in the house. And so we know the story. Pharaoh refused to let the people go. And unfortunately, the angel of death came through and took the lives of many Egyptians. With therefore, Pharaoh finally released the Jewish people, and that began the Jewish festival, the Jewish feast of Passover. And so now we fast forward, you know, about 15, 14, 1500 years later, and we come to Jesus' days, and they're still practicing, they're still celebrating Passover, and the way they would do it, um, every year and Passover in Jesus' time is that they would take, every Jewish family would take a spotless lamb, right? A spotless lamb. They would take it to the temple. They would offer it to the priest. The priest was, were killed, you know, would, would, would take the life of that lamb, you know, and, and, and then they would cook the meat and then they would take the, the meat of that lamb and they would take it back to their house and they would have their Passover feast with their family and, and, and maybe you know, close friends, and whoever might be invited. And, and they would celebrate it with a way of remembrance of the rescue, of the freedom from bondage from Jesus. But however, uh, Jesus took the Passover on this particular day, right before he went to the cross, and he took it to a whole different level. Where the Passover meant something to the Jewish people, Jesus transform Passover and made it relatable, not just to the Jewish person, but to every person that, was, that believed on Jesus. Every person that believed what Jesus, and Jesus was basically preparing, hey, this is what's going to happen to me on the cross. Now, at that moment, the disciples, I'm sure they didn't quite understand all that was happening until after the fact. And therefore, Christians have been practicing not so much Passover, but we've been practicing the Lord's Supper, or we call it communion, both ways works. And we've been practicing it, not in light of what God did in Egypt, but what Jesus did for us on that cross. You see, the purpose of communion, the simple method of communion is because of the dying of his body, in the shedding of his blood, a holy God 
can pass over your sins, to pass over your sin. And that's why today, it's a day of celebration. You didn't come in here to, to mourn because someone died. We come in here because we serve a living Savior, a living hope. We are celebrating someone who is alive. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul lays out communion, Lord's Supper, and why it's such a big deal, why it's so important for us, why we do it, why it matters. Now, so I want to take some time today to give us this thought on why communion is so important. Number one, if you're taking notes, communion is a time of remembrance. A time of remembrance. In chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, and it's just what he told his disciples, right there in that very first that very first uh, did a Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. See, if you're taking notes, the primary purpose of communion is that it is a symbolic, it is a symbolic reminder of Christ's death for all mankind. It's a, it is a symbolic reminder of Christ's death for you and for me. Two times in 1 Corinthians 11, Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of me. And this is very specific here. We are told that we are to remember nothing else at this moment in our life except Jesus his body, and his blood. He, he and he alone, it's it to be our, our sole focus. And, and very specific, we're not, in this communion moment, we're not to remember Christ's birth, although that's important. We're not told to remember Christ's teaching, although it's very important. His miracles, all that's wonderful, but in their communion moment, we are to remember and really focus on his sacrifice. We are to remember his death. And this is a time in communion, this is a time where you get away from everything emotionally, you get away mentally, and you're totally focused on Jesus. You don't think about the person next to you, the person across the room, you don't think about your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, you don't think about your work, you don't think about what needs to get done around the house, you don't think about your hobby, you don't think about anything else during communion. We are to concentrate why we're doing this. And we are to focus and to remember Jesus. This whole service today is to point us to Jesus. And we can remember, every song that we sang today is to remember who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And there's not a more beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us and what he means to us than the participation of the Lord's Supper. 
every time we observe it, we are to never forget Jesus died for you. One of the greatest preachers of all time, pastor in England, name is Charles Spurgeon. On his deathbed, his final words, on his bed before he died, he said these words, Jesus died for me. Jesus, he died for me. That's the last thing he remembered before he died. And my friend, that is the first thing we should remember as we live. The second thought, why this is so important, is communion is a time of proclamation. Proclamation. We see in verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we're to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take communion, we are also listening to a sermon. In fact, communion is probably the most eloquent sermon about the death of Jesus Christ that could ever be preached. It's interactive. It is a sermon being preached. You see, I know there are people from time to time that say, Scott, I don't understand why we do baptism a certain way and why we do communion a certain way. You know, why, why not just uh, anything? Why, why not just, you know, when it comes to baptism, what's the big deal? Why can't we just do it whenever it works? You know, why, why in baptism, you know, instead of immersion, we sprinkle? You know, why, why don't we go that route? You know, why, why, when it comes to communion, you know, take something different, you know, why, why, why does it have to be juice? Why can't it not be, you know, uh, water or soda or whatever it might be? And, and what, what's the big deal? And the reason is because both communion and baptism are sermons about salvation. Unless they are observed correctly, the whole picture of salvation become lost. For example, Paul said this about baptism. Romans 6.4, we are therefore buried with him through baptism. You can't get buried through him in a sprinkle. You get buried by getting dunk. All right, that's the picture. He said, he said, he said we are buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Another translation that says, so that we might walk in newness of life. Last Sunday, we baptized 18 people. 18 people. You know what? That deserves an applause right there. You know, isn't that awesome? Yeah, people get baptized in the first service. People got baptized in the second service, and there were some people said, hey, let's go. I, want, I still want to try the, the lake. And we went out to the lake, and we had five people that got in the lake, and actually, you know, the weather was actually somewhat decent. We could have actually have done what we did last week, but it was just so hard to plan. You know, the weatherman, he was wrong again, you know. I mean, come on. But that's all right, you know. That, that's the best job to have, you know, be wrong 90% of the job and not, you know, not get blamed for it, you know. So uh, anyhow, he, he, you know, it was awesome. 18 people. Symbolize the death of Jesus by going under. Coming out of that water like Jesus came out of the grave to walk 
in newness of life. You know, when we take communion, it's, you know, it's important to me that the bread is made out of unleavened bread. Bread that's without leaven, without, without flaws. It's pure. That's why when you taste it in a little bit, it's kind of plain. And I need, you know, there's no salt on it. It's not a, it's a, it's, hey, it's to represent the body of Christ with, without leaven. And in the, in the, in the Jew, which is red, and some churches use wine, we use juice, and, and, and it represents, you know, the, 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 the red juice represents the, the blood that was shed for you and for me. And this is a sermon. And when you take this together, you're proclaiming what you believe to be true about Jesus and about salvation. We are, we are participating. We are proclaiming Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Communion number three. Oh, it's so important. The time of unity. The time of unity. Communion reminds us that we are all the same. Every one of us. We're all the same at the foot of the cross. Every one of us here today, we're broken people. And that old sign that says, we're all sinners. And some of you, if you have salvation, you know Jesus, you're sinners saved by grace. But we all have equal footing at the cross. Equal footing. We're all the same. In fact, the word communion the, in the Greek, it's the word koinonia. Uh, it's interesting, in 2018, the bee, the final word for spelling bee was this word, koinonia. It was that one word that if I happened to be in the championship for the spelling bee, I would have won. Koinonia. I was like, oh, I know what that word is. And they're all like, can I get a definition? Can I get a sentence? I'm like, hey, here's what it means. It means fellowship. It means sharing in common. In a few minutes, it's a time of fellowship. Fellowship is not donuts and coffee. In a fellowship hall. That's not what fellowship is. That's a part of fellowship, but fellowship, true fellowship, is coming together as a body of Christ, unified at the foot of the cross, realizing, hey, we're all broken. Now, the Corinthians, they had a problem with this. Uh, in fact, the whole book of Corinthians, it's, Jesus, it's, it's Paul writing a letter to the Corinthians that was just kind of, they were out of line in a lot of areas. They were out of, you know, it was, was kind of like a, a toe-stepping book. It's just a, a, a letter, stepping on toes, hey, guys, I love you, but you know, almost every chapter is about something. Uh, they, they've allowed the culture of Greek to kind of invade the church. And so Paul kind of, you know, he's rolling up his sleeve and said, all right, guys, I, I didn't want to have to write this letter, but I'm going to. And one of the problems they had was unity. They, they were very disunified. Part of the culture of Greek was uh, favoritism, especially at mealtime. You know, the, the haves and the have-nots were separated. You know, the haves, those that had much, those that had, you know, they were pedigrees or, or money financially, they, 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 were, they, had, they were in the front of the line, and if you didn't have much, you were at the back of the line, and if, we didn't, if you ran out of food, too bad, so sad. That was the mindset. And, and they were doing this, 
in the church with the Lord's Supper. They, they, were, they had formed these little cliques. You know, they, they, this little holy huddle. And if you, didn't, if you weren't at their level, spiritually, economically, whatever it might be, then you weren't included. So they, they, you know, they had these holy huddles. Us for no more. They were content with their little group. That's why here at Lake Park, we work hard not to have clicks. One of the things you can listen, we're all about friendship, relationships, but always look outside your group and say, who else can be a part of this? Who else can be included? Who else, who else can be involved? And we want to make sure we're including everybody. We, want, we work on that. But the Corinthians had a problem. In fact, we kind of see that Paul kind of get on to them a little bit in chapter 11, verse 20. He said, he said, so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you think you're taking. Some of you think you're having a Lord's Supper, you're not. He said, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry, left out, and the other is just taking advantage of it too much. One gets hungry, and another gets drunk. He said, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Hey, should I praise you? Should, should I say good job? No way. Certainly not in this manner. And, 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 and so Paul get it on to them. But then Paul encouraged them. And on verse 33, he said, My brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, should all eat together. We all eat together. We're all on the same level. When we come to the communion here in a few minutes, you know what happened? You know what should happen? Our social level, our social level disappear. Our economic level disappear. Our spiritual level disappear. We're all equal, broken at the foot of the cross. Jesus died for each and every one of us. He died for us because we're all sinners. We're hopelessly lost except for the grace of God. So if you're a new believer, guess what? You can celebrate communion with a person who's been saved for 50 years. We are all at the level ground at the cross. Number four, this is why it's just a big deal. It's, it's communion. Oh, it's a time of personal reflection. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. Whoever eats the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The word examine, it means to prove or to qualify. In other words, before you take communion today, you've got to make sure you're qualified. Now, we don't have any communion bouncers in the room. Communion cops. None of that's happening. I'm, honestly, at the end of the day, it's between you and God. But I'm gonna, I want you to understand, though, that communion is, number one, a true qualification or two, two 
ways you qualify for communion. Number one, you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Otherwise, it just, just doesn't mean anything to you because you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior. In fact, this, this has nothing to do with salvation. We don't take communion to get saved. We take communion because we're saved. And so, you have accepted Christ. And number two, it's a second qualification. You are willing to be honest with any sin in your life and to take care of that sin before you take communion. You know, you can do that right here. You can do that right in your, sin, right, right in your seat. You can ask God. There's three ways to address God. Take note. Three ways to address God with your sin. Number one, identify it. Identify your sin. Confess your sin, number two. Confess your sin. And then God, ask God to purify your heart. Open my eyes. Purify my heart. You confess, you ask God. God, search my heart. Search me, O oh Lord. I, and, 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 and let him show you. All of a sudden, when you ask God to search your heart, that anger that was out of control the past week kind of rises to the surface. That moment of lust, that moment of pride, God said, hey, I'm going to deal with this. He said, I confess. You're not confessing to me. Because I'm at the foot of the cross just with you, buddy. You know, I, I don't have a higher standard, a higher level. You know, hey, I've got a closer reach with God. No, 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 no. I'm at the same. You're, you're, we're all coming to him at the foot of the cross. We ask God to purify our heart. Open my eyes and make me clean. We come to God with clean hands and pure hearts. You know, um, a lot of ways you can have a personal retirement reflection. You know, and, and, and in a few minutes, I hope that when we take communion, you, you can take a few minutes to do that. In fact, one reason why we let the announce a week out, not Sunday communion, is so that you could do that all week long. Prepare your hearts. You know, last night, you know, I took time after the kids and the wife went to bed and had to prepare my heart and prepare my notes today, I had personal time of reflection. I asked God to identify sin in my life. I asked God, hey, what do I need to confess? What do I need to confess to you? I, I read Psalm 51. I meditate on that chapter because Psalm 51 is, is David's powerful word of confession to God after his mighty sin against Bathsheba. And I meditate on that. I meditate on, on, on Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, where it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See, God, if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me, God, in the way of everlasting. Search my heart. And then I'll start singing a little song. I don't sing it so loud because I don't want to wake up the neighborhood. I start just saying, God, I want to be pure. And I sing a song, change my heart, oh God. 
make it ever true. Change my heart, oh God, may I be like you. Not having my time of personal reflection, because I know when I get here on a Sunday morning and here on the pulpit, it's kind of hard to do that, but I prepare my heart all day, all week, so that I can come to the table with clean hands, pure heart. Am I perfect? No, far from it. But I've been invited to the table because of God's love and grace towards me. That's a time of self-reflection. That's a big deal. Number five, moving quickly here, it's a time of anticipation. It's a time of anticipation. If you look here in verse number in verse number 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we take communion, you're not only looking backwards, we're looking forward. We're to take the supper. We're to take communion. Only until he comes back. We've talked about in time the last five, six weeks. Until he comes back. Communion is a link between the two comings of Jesus. It's a picture of his death. It's also a promise of his coming. It, it points backwards to the crucifixion. It points forward to his coming. It, it looks backward to a cross. It looks upwards to the clouds. Each time we take it, we are reminded that this same Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a perfect life, who died a sinless death, who was raised from the dead, he's also coming back. He's coming back. And one day, we'll sit forever with him at his table. Number six, oh, such a big deal. Communion is a time of thanksgiving. When we come to the table, when we take communion, we're thanking God for his sacrifice. I thank God for my declaration of victory on October 7, 1982, when I got on my little bitty knees and asked Jesus Christ to come into my little heart and be my Lord and Savior. That was my moment of declaration of faith. And I thank God that the God that saved me back then is still saving this broken sinner today. He's still saving me. It's a salvation that doesn't go away. It's a salvation that keeps on saving in my life. I am thankful for the cross. I'm thankful that he come to me. I'm thankful for what he's done. It's a moment of thanksgiving. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, go back a chapter, Paul says this. He says, it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Paul said we should give thanks every time. We take communion. The old song that, was some song that was sung many years ago by Andre Crouch, famous singer, he wrote a song called The Tribute. He says, how can I say thanks for all the things you have done for me? Thanks so undeserved, 
that you gave your life to prove for me. The voices of a million angels could not express my gratitude. All that I am and ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. To God be the glory for the things he has done. With his blood, he has saved me. With his power, oh, my friend, he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. There's a little town in South Alabama as I close this message out, a town called Enterprise, Alabama. You know, for me, I, I, I've been a part of all, I've been, you know, I live in Panhandle, Florida. I sometimes call it L.A., Lower Alabama. You know, it, it should have just been a part of Alabama, you know, in my, my opinion. Alabama, I divide it in three different ways. The top third of Alabama is the south. Birmingham, little cultural center there, a little polish. Then you got the middle third, you got the deep south, Montgomery, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, all that, Hank Williams, Hank Williams Jr., deep south, okay? But then you got the bottom third of Alabama, and you know it, deep, deep south. And I've been through deep, deep south Alabama, it's a different world. Enterprise Alabama is a part of that world. They were known for cotton. They had cotton farmers and cotton fields all over the area in Enterprise Alabama until 1915. 1915, a, an unknown pest came through called the boll weevil. And the boll weevil ravaged the cotton fields, destroyed the economy. The people were left in ruins. And they didn't know what to do. They were like, man, this is terrible. This is devastating. Devastated the, the culture, devastated the economics of that little town of Enterprise, Alabama. Now, one farmer said, you know what? I'm going to try to plant some peanuts and grow some peanuts. And he started growing some peanuts. Another farmer said, that's a good idea, and they started growing peanuts. In fact, the peanuts thrived so much better than the cotton did. Before you know it, the peanuts saved that city of enterprise. Today, it's the, one of the number one area of peanut being produced in the world. 1915, they saw a disaster to turn around and saw the good in it. In fact, in 1919, that little town, and I've been in this little town, and goes through this little town, you see the statue that they built in the middle of this town. It's a statue of a lady holding up a big giant boll weevil. It's the only statue in the world that pays homage to a pest. An enterprise Alabama in deep, deep south Alabama. They pulled it off. Because you know why? 
just every time they look at that statue, they saw it not as a curse, but as a blessing. God has given us the greatest monument of all time, the greatest memorial. And here's the difference. The difference is the bow weevil, it brought death. But Jesus Christ, because of death, because of his death on the cross, he brought life. And today, that's why we celebrate communion. That's why it's so important. We celebrate the memory of what Jesus did for us on that cross. God, we love you. We thank you today. We thank you for the power of the cross. You willingly, you willingly lay down your life. You laid it all. In fact, God, you laid it all, you, you went all in. You went all in for me, for everyone in this room, and for the all of mankind. And so God, I pray you prepare our hearts. Personal self-reflection, whatever that might be in the next few minutes. Perhaps, God, there's someone here there's some things that they need to confess. You know, they're, they're, they're a Christian. They, they're, they're saved. But they got some things in their life that they need to confess. God, I pray in the next few minutes that they will identify, confess, and come to the table with, with clean hands, pure hearts. God, maybe there's someone here today that don't know you as your Lord and Savior. I pray in the next few minutes that they will see the testimony all around them of life change. I pray that they see all around him, all around her, that he or she will see sinners saved by your grace. And so God, we ask you to bless the next few minutes as we remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.